This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to the Dermalogs podcast, episode one. Feels like Star Wars, I don't know. This is a podcast series that's specifically designed for dermatology residents to try to help you get information on topics you just might not have access to at your centers. For any of you who don't know me, I'm a dermatologist from Halifax, Nova Scotia, coming at you from the beautiful East Coast. I spend about 60% of my time doing community-based general dermatology medical practice in my office, and then I spend the other time as the program director for Dalhousie and doing some academic stuff. So, that's me. This is Dermalogs. Let's get going with our topic for this episode. Your favorite, my favorite, wound care. You know you need it. Now, it's very interesting that my first guest is Dr. Lori Parsons, because really, I came up with this idea because of Lori and and while chatting with Lori. So, Lori was giving a presentation at the Atlantic Province's DERM meeting in June this past year in Newfoundland. She was talking about wound care and contact dermatitis. And afterwards, I remember saying, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had a curriculum so that residents that didn't have access to some of these special specialized uh, clinics or experts would be able to access sort of curriculum across the country? And it sort of melded into this podcast idea. So I think it's quite timely that Dr. Parsons is my first uh, guest here. Lori, thanks so much for taking this leap of faith and joining me on our inaugural episode of this podcast series. Thank you very much, Carrie. <laughs> that was pretty exciting to be the inaugural speaker. <laughs> thanks for joining me. I do really appreciate it. Um, you know, wound care is one of those areas for me uh, that gives me palpitations a little bit when I see that a referral come across my desk, I kind of get a little bit anxious. And the main reason for that is that I've become the de facto wound care expert here in Halifax. My husband's a vascular surgeon, all the vascular surgeons know me. And so they've taken to sending me their complex cases of wounds that don't heal. I don't feel particularly equipped to be able to deal with some of these issues. And so I'm really looking forward to the content tonight to also help improve my practice. Um, so Lori, you know, how did you get into wound care? I think that's a very interesting area. How did you originally get into that? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, I, I had a friend who's a vascular surgeon who said, Oh, you are a frustrated surgeon, right? That's why you're doing this. Eh, who knows? Right. Um, when I, when I moved to Calgary, I, there was a wound clinic and I went, Oh, great. I love wounds. I'll go to the wound clinic. And it was run by GPs and they, they had a lot of expertise in dealing with diabetic foot wounds because that's what the clinic was originally set up for, was dealing with people with diabetes and having foot issues. And when I started going there, um, they said, oh my gosh, we have a dermatologist. And they started bringing in a lot more complicated wounds. So uh, wounds from our rheumatologists, wounds from our uh, infectious disease specialists that were just, you know, weird and wonderful wounds. And I think dermatologists really bring a strength to this field in that I've had patients send to me as wounds, squamous cell carcinomas, malignant melanomas, um, pyoderma gangrenosum, eczema, 
as a chronic wound, right? Just because it's oozing and it's on the lower leg. And I think as dermatologists, we can look at that and we go, oh, that's not even a wound. This is what we have to do to treat that and, and not waste a lot of time trying to heal something that's never going to heal with a dressing. So that's what got me into wound care. That's how I, I morphed from just being a dermatologist who looks after venous leg ulcers to a dermatologist who spends 50% of their time in the treatment of chronic wounds. And I, I, leave the, I leave the referral open. I take all comers. If it's a chronic wound, I'd rather see it and decide, is this truly a chronic wound or is it an eczema, like a venous stasis dermatitis, rather than trying to be too specific about my referral guidelines. And I think you made a couple of really important points, uh, Lori, and I think one is the diagnosis. And I know sometimes, you know, me, I get those palpitations when I see chronic wound, but from time to time, the person rolls in and it's a completely different diagnosis or, you know, it's pyoderma gangrenosum. And although you need to apply wound care techniques, you also need to treat the underlying cause. And so I do think that that's um, really important. And you've probably seen a huge um, explosion in dressing options over the past number of years. And, and uh, I'm a little bit curious to see what you think about some of these new and quote unquote sexy dressings, because, uh, you know, I think at least here we have our VON always wanting to use the Trifera Blue or whatever the new kid on the block is. But I think basic wound care principles uh, probably trump uh, fancy dressings. Well, they certainly do. And you're right about dressing. Sometimes it's the smoke and mirrors of, um, of wound care. Um, when, when you're, I think that probably takes us right back to an approach to chronic, like how, what do I do when I actually see that patient come in through the door? Yeah. Um, yeah. My very first thing is I want eyes on. I want to, you know, I don't want the nurses to waste their time doing ABIs and toe pressures and, you know, skin evaluations. And if, it, if I look at a wound and go, that's probably a squamous cell. I want to biopsy it. I, I don't want to waste their time. So I want to get eyes on and have a look and see if clinically, if I agree that this is truly a chronic wound. Then we know that the three commonest things, the three commonest reasons that people get chronic wounds are in the literature. We talk about venous or venous leg ulcers. And venous leg ulcers, it's a, it's a funny term because we use it to, often colloquially as dermatologists, we use it to, for any leg that has edema. And that is not truly um, a venous incompetency or um, uh, you know, a venous um, ulcer uh, by true definition. Um, so edema is one reason why people can get persistent wounds. Then there's arterial ischemia. And then the third is pressure. And I think of diabetic foot ulcers are in that group and diabetic foot ulcers are probably the largest group that we see, but diabetic foot ulcers are first and foremost, a pressure ulcer, because no matter what else is going on, if we offload that, that foot, if we take the pressure off, there's many different ways of doing that. We could do an hour on that. But if we take the pressure off, the wound will heal. So even if they have neovascular issues, even if their hemoglobin A1Cs are 18, we can often heal that wound by taking off the pressure. So those are the three commonest reasons that we right. see it. Then there's this, um, I like the acronym VIPS, V-I-P-S. Okay. V is, you know, vascular. To me, that's arterial ischemic. And I like to put vasculitic ulcers in there right. because vasculitis are first and foremost an arterial ischemic ulcer. The I stands for infection or inflammation. Um, P stands for pressure. And then S, I, you know, stasis, right? For whatever reason, the patient has edema. Sometimes you'll see a complicated patient that actually has a, a mixture of 
uh, venous plus arterial. Those are probably one of the most challenging ones to treat, but we can certainly get back to that. So identify the underlying etiology. Then you have to decide, is this wound healable? Because you can waste an awful lot of time and money on treating, well, let's say it's a palliative wound, let's say it's a, a breast cancer, and that's eroded through the chest wall. Um, you can waste an awful lot of money and time trying to, quote, heal that wound when it's never going to heal. So I think that's really important. Is a wound healable? What's your go-to? How do you decide that? Do you do investigations? Uh, do you, is it based on clinical only? You know, how do you, how do you decide that? That's a really good question because it, unfortunately it is a mixture of both. There's not a test that you can do to see if it's healable or not. Sometimes you're going to give a patient a trial of treatment to see if it's healable. So for instance, if I have a patient who comes in and they have edema, maybe they're in heart failure, um, and, I've, and I look at their wound and it's on the lateral aspect of their leg and it's painful and clinically it suits uh, an arterial ischemic wound. Now I go ahead then and I do ABIs. We'll do ABIs in the clinic with a handheld Doppler. We'll also do toe waves with the Doppler, which I really like because if, I, if, I'm, if the um, ABI is equivocal, say it's a 0.8 in a diabetic patient, and we often know that they have abnormally, um, artificially elevated ABIs right. because of you know, calcium in their vessels. And I'm going, yeah, do they have enough vascular, you know, do they have enough blood flow to heal the wound? Then I'll look at the TBI, so the toe brachial pressures. We'll actually put a little blood pressure cuff around the toe and get a systolic pressure. The TBI tends to be a little bit more accurate than an ABI because the calcification, uh, even though you'll get it in the digital arteries, it's more compressible than, say, it is in a posterior tibial. Um, and then I like to look at the toe waves because if I get an ABI that's 0.4 and I got a TBI that's 0.2 and the toe waves are triphasic, Oh, something wrong here. You can't have a triphasic toe wave with those really, really poor values. So um, I'll try and look at those um, parameters to see if it's going to heal. And let's say I think I have, I think I have enough blood flow to heal. I'm going to, but because of the edema, I do want to compress. So I'm probably going to choose very low grade compression, um, maybe uh, an over-the-counter pumper sock or even a layer of edema wear or a layer of tubi grip. A layer of tubi grip has about between five and eight millimeters of mercury mm -hmm. at the ankle per layer. Um, then I might give that wound a trial of therapy to see like six weeks to see if, if I get any improvement. Um, so you have to do that clinical assessment. Always you need to do that clinical assessment. Um, sometimes you can see right off the bat, the wound is not healable. You know, you've got a patient who's congestive heart failure. They're 80 years old. They're in arterial, they're in uh, atrial fibrillation. Their ABIs are 0.3. Their TBIs are 0.2, which are really low. And you're going, this patient is not a surgical candidate. They're never, ever, there's not a surgeon in the world who's going to do a bypass on this candidate. So then we're going to try and look at the, uh, what are our goals of care? So healing might not be our goal of care. Instead, we'll look at um, pain control, odor control, um, having a dressing that doesn't interfere too much with the patient's social life. Right. Uh, you know, you don't want them coming to the clinic every single day for a non-healable wound. Um, so is the wound healable or non-healable? And that's, of all, everything we do, diagnosis is one thing. And, you know, diagnosis is one of those things you get good at over time. But trying to decide if a wound is healable or not can be very, very difficult. If I think the wound is healable, then my next branch in my algorithm is whether or not this wound is suitable for moist wound healing. 
So moist wound healing is that occlusive wound healing that uh, Winter described in 1962. And remember I said we got duoderm in the uh, late 80s. That's how long it took for us to buy into moist wound healing. Um, and But, you know, if it's an infected wound, I'm not going to choose moist wound healing for an infected wound because we do know that that dressing needs to be changed at least once a day. And moist wound healing, what you're trying to do with that is increase the wear time of the dressing. How long can you leave the dressing on? And if I want to leave a dressing on for two to three days, I can't put that on an infected wound. I have to treat the infection first. Right. And I guess, uh, so that's going to jump off to a question, you know, sometimes it's really challenging clinically to determine if a wound is in fact infected. So I'm not talking about the ones where they got a fever and their streaks going up their leg and, you know, yeah, that's, that's, I can, I can diagnose that. How do you make the clinical decision about an infected wound in yeah. this context? Not the, cl- not the really rip roaring ones. Okay. So when we're talking about what happens on the surface of a wound in terms of bacteria, we know that we have uh, contamination, colonization, critical colonization, and then frank infection. Mm-hmm. The first three can be treated topically. Right. Uh, frank infection, the patient deserves and needs a systemic antibiotic. Don't, don't, don't worry about, you know, what silver dressing am I going to pick if this wound is truly infected. Um, every single wound is contaminated. And it's one of the reasons why we don't routinely swab chronic wounds, because we are going to grow bacteria. We've got a test now that has a positive result. And now you have to interpret that test. Is it truly infected or not? And one of the tricks that we'll use is look at the neutrophil count. And if it's, if it's a heavy growth of neutrophil, heavy amount of neutrophils, plus they're growing uh, an organism that makes sense, then we'll say, okay, fair enough. This, this, this is probably significant. And do you mean the, the uh, neutrophil count from the swab or peripheral uh, blood? From the swab. Okay, from the sorry, swab. Just to clarify things. Yeah. So when we come to um, colonization, every single wound gets colonized. Once it's, you know, it's contaminated at first and within a few days, this wound is going to be colonized. And again, colonization does not mean infection. Colonization, right. though, in a wound that's right on the brink of whether or not it has the internal resources to heal, colonization might play a role. Uh, in slowing wound healing and preventing that wound from healing. Um, I ask the patient usually about symptoms. When patients are going from colonization to infection, they often start to experience a burning discomfort in the wound, which was not there before. So if the patient says it's starting to burn, it's starting to sting, and you look at it and it doesn't look much different, than last week when the patient said it wasn't burning and it wasn't stinging. I think you had to be very suspicious then that the, the bacteria in that wound are starting to, um, they're starting to cause a, a, a localized host response. Um, I will always use infrared skin temperatures as well, because that can be a really neat tool. It's cheap. Um, Kevin Wu and Gary Sybil did a really neat study where they looked at um, infrared heat sensors that you can buy at Canadian Tire to see if there's a draft in your window that you need to put putty around. And they're cheap. They're like 20 bucks. Um, so is that, is that what you use? The Canadian Tire? Well, version? we actually, no, we got the more expensive okay. ones in the clinic, but I think when they break, I'm going to tell them to go buy the Canadian <laughs> Tire version ones. And I do, knew, I do know wound clinicians who work in periphery that, um, that will buy those because those, they you don't have to touch them on the skin. Well, that's what I was going to ask. How do you work that? So you just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's actually, I haven't you seen that in action. 
<laughs> Every one of them is a little bit different, but they are an infrared sensor okay. that you hold at a certain distance away from the wound and you just huh. click a button and it will give you a temperature reading. Usually we'll compare it to the, because often we're talking about leg wounds. And so we'll compare it to the contralateral leg. And if you get more than a three degree Fahrenheit difference uh, between uh, the site on the right leg and the same site on the left leg, that is a very good indication that you've got increasing inflammation in that leg. And often this inflammation, especially if it wasn't there before, like I'm not talking about a pyodermic gangrenosum, but especially if it wasn't there before, now you've got really good empiric evidence that something is causing increased inflammation and the commonest reason being infection. And so we'll often use that. So is that what, when we refer to the term biofilm, is that what we're talking about the colonization or is that critical colonization or is that something else altogether? Biofilm is something completely different altogether. I think we're recognizing, it used to be, oh, does that wound have a biofilm? I think it's more accurate to say every wound has a biofilm because a biofilm is nothing really okay. fancy other than multiple organisms living together uh, in an area in, in relative synergy. You know, they're not competing with each right. other or actively trying to destroy each other. And so we look catheter tips. You know, if you put a catheter into someone's superior vena cava uh, within under 24 hours, that catheter has a biofilm on it. Now, is that significant? Well, if it doesn't make the patient sick, it's not significant. Um, but biofilm is often one of the reasons why topical antibiotic therapy sometimes doesn't work very well because a biofilm, usually they're producing... Um, uh, they're, pretty, they're, they're often producing, I always think of it as, you know, the cowboys and Indians and those old 1950s movies where the cowboys are behind the palisade, right? And the Indians are circling around. You know, Lori, I, I don't know if our residents will remember <laughs> Maybe the not. 1950s. <laughs> Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they need to watch Gunga Din, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got to think of a, a a more millennial style uh, reference for that. Yeah, but. I'm sure there is one, but I just can't think of it right now. Star Wars. <laughs> now, when you're so when you're thinking of biofilm, you're thinking of sort of physical. Yeah. Um, I think at the talk that you gave, one of the things that I actually applied back to my clinical practice was this hibitane or chlorhexidine light scrub. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased to report that a lady that I've been following that has 10 years of a non-healing ulcer, uh, and I kind of thought she was a little bit... Um, What's the proper term? Like nuts. <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, but then I started to do these light scrubs and had the VON do them once a week. And lo and behold, uh, it's, it's sort of shrunk in by an inch all around so far. So, you know, I, I think, um, would is that what you do? Do you do the Hibitane scrubs or is there other techniques that you have for that critical colonization, uh, colonization or biofilm removal in order to help wounds heal? So in terms of, of removing that biofilm, um, chemical does not work very well. Um, we've tried it, you know, that's what we tried with silvers. That's what we tried with, um, you know, other uh, like alcohols, things like that to denature. You can use a physical modality. So a hibitane scrub is a really nice physical modality because it has that soft kind of scrubby sponge on the end mm -hmm. that you can very lightly debride the surface of a wound. And, and biofilm comes off really well with debridement. And if you think about the dentist going at your teeth, you know, with the pick that they still actually use that pick to scrape the tartar off your teeth. Tartar is a great example of a biofilm. Um, and so any physical modality like that works really well. Um, I have some, I know of people who will use a curettes and will curette the base of the wound. Um, that's a real, that's a sharp debridement technique. Uh, surgeons have 
always done sharp debridement for these wounds, but it is fairly destructive to do curatage. Uh, and mm. sometimes it works really well, but sometimes, especially if you've got a patient that's right on the verge of will they heal or won't they heal, it can be too aggressive to surgically debride. I will say though that anytime you have a significant amount of necrotic tissue in a wound, you need to take it out. It just right. it just keeps that in, that whole inflammatory phase of wound healing. It just keeps perpetuating that inflammatory phase. Um, another thing that we're using in clinic right now is ultraviolet C light. So if you think about any, any of us who worked in microbiology labs, you know, in our undergraduate years, you know, when you left the lab, you flicked on the UV light that shone an ultraviolet light on the surface of the bench and it cleaned up the bench, you know, for the next day's use. Uh, UVC does pretty much the same thing. It's a very safe modality. It's fairly, fairly inexpensive. And we've got a bunch now in Calgary that we've been using. And um, we have the nurses go into uh, the patient's home or the patient comes to clinic two or three times a week. And it's, um, you know, two minutes or three minutes of ultraviolet C light that we're shining on them. So that's another modality that we can use. Can you get that at Canadian Tire? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, just wondering. Okay, now that's really interesting. You know, I remember being a resident and the the interesting, th or the, uh, there were two things that people were really using at the time. One was this sort of like a, a glorified water pick that was providing um, more or less sharp, um, uh, debridement. And then the other thing was this, it was the Medi Honey Boom. Are you using much of that anymore? I, I These were all trying to help decrease colonization, but I found it quite goopy. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the water pick idea, hydrotherapy, plastic surgeons have used that for a long time to help debride their, uh, their burn patients. Um, so water pick is essentially a f another physical modality because you're using the force of the water. Um, we will sometimes have patients uh, take their handheld shower head if they have one, set it on the pulse setting. And when they get into the shower, just pulse it for a minute or so yeah. right on the wound. It just, again, helps to debride some of that, uh, what's very superficial on the surface. It never goes down, should never go down to bleeding. Um, in terms of MediHoney, uh, MediHoney is a really interesting product that we haven't, we haven't used enough of. And the main reason uh, out West is the cost. MediHoney can be, <clears throat> excuse me, really expensive. Um, and patients in Alberta pay for their dressings. Um, so, they're much more expensive to buy. For instance, if you have a foam dressing that's plain and mm -hmm. a foam dressing with Medi Honey, the Medi Honey dressing is almost twice the cost of the regular foam dressing. So without having a lot of, you know, oh my gosh, I can guarantee this is going to heal your wound uh, and not being able to tell the patient that, I tend not to use those, uh, the, the Medi Honey dressings for that reason. Well, I think that's fair. I did have a beekeeper patient that told me used to just smear on the stuff straight out of the um, the comb. But I, you know, I I, <laughs> I don't know what I could say much about that. I can't comment on the cleanliness. Well, you're going to get bee option. parts in there. That's for sure, right? You know, <laughs> there's going to be bee parts. And and as you know from your contact side of things, maybe a little propolis isn't a great plan to have in that wound. Not always. Um, okay, let's get to some questions from residents on this topic. We asked dermatology residents to phone in with their questions, which they did. You've reached the world headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Bahar Brani, and I'm a dermatology resident at the University of Toronto. I have a question about the approach to dressings in general, including broad categories, and when to know uh, to use them. 
That's a great question. Lori, I think that's a really good place to start. How do you approach this? So when you're trying to decide what dressing to pick, first of all, you have to assess the moisture balance in that wound. Is the wound too wet? Is the wound too dry? If you're going to put a dressing on and you want it to last for two to three days, you also have to have enough clinical experience or you have to guess. When you're first starting out, it's okay to guess um, because, you're, you know, the patient's had the wound for months and sometimes years. An extra couple of weeks is not going to make any difference. Um, right. But you're trying to guess how much exudate, how much moisture are you going to need to, to get that dressing to control over the next two to three days. And generally, venous leg ulcers have a lot of exudate coming out of them because there's so much edema in the leg. Uh, and when you start compressing the leg, getting rid of some of that fluid, it tends to come out through the ulcer. And so for the first four or five days, you're going to get a lot of drainage coming out of that leg. Whereas arterial ischemic ulcers are going to be drier. They're not going to have as mm-hmm. much exudate because they don't have the blood supply. So I, I lump dressings into moist wound healing and non-moist wound healing. So non-moist, non-occlusive healing, which is the same thing as moist wound healing. Uh, non-occlusive healing is things like dry gauze, telfa pads, combi pads, abdominal pads. All of these things are cotton-based. You lay them on, they tend to absorb a lot of exudate, but they're not going to give you that moist wound healing milieu that we talk about uh, with these dressings. After that, we've got films, hydrocolloids, foams. Those are the three major categories of dressings to think about. Um, films are things like uh, Tegaderm and Opsite. They, they look like cling wrap with sticky glue on them. Uh, anyone who's done um, uh, medical team rotation uh, or been in Emerge has seen an IV go in and you usually put one of these these film dressings over it. But as you can imagine, that's not going to absorb, although it's very occlusive. You know, it's going to prevent water from getting into it. It's going to prevent oxygen from getting in there. And it's going to prevent bacteria from getting in there, extra bacteria. Um, It's going to do nothing in terms of managing moisture that's coming out of that wound. Right. It's just going to hold it in like a little sack of fluid. Hydrocolloids will manage minimal amounts of exudate. And that's important when you're looking at the stage that a wound is in. Because when we first start healing wounds, uh, you know, no dressing's been put on it. We're looking at it for the very first time. They're often going to be very exudative at first as they're going from that inflammatory to that proliferative stage. Because the early part of that proliferative stage is building all those new blood vessels, which I always think of as the scaffolding that everything else is going to be built upon. And those new Mm -hmm. blood vessels have really leaky connections between each other and they just pour fluid out. Um, so a hydrocolloid dressing is probably going to be better used as, you, as, that, as that wound progresses through that proliferative phase and it gets all those lovely, nice granulation tissue buds in the base of the wound and that granulation tissue matures and the, the, the junctions between those cells become tight. They produce less, they, they, less fluid will come out of them. And at that point, a hydrocolloid dressing, which was only going to um, absorb minimal amounts of exudate, will probably be really, really effective. So it allows you to manage that little bit of exudate that's coming out of the wound and leave the surface of the wound undisturbed because you're taking the dressing off every maybe three to five days and allowing epithelialization to proceed across the surface of that wound without having to destroy it or or disrupt it every time you pull the dressing off. 
And so for that, we're talking about things like a duoderm, for example, or exactly. that would be a hydrocolloid. That was yeah. the original hydrocolloid. Okay. Um, after that, we have foam dressings, and foam dressings will absorb moderate amounts of exudate. Some foam dressings will lock the moisture into the middle. They have a, what's called a moisture lock technology, which is very similar to what happens in modern diapers. <laughs> you know, when you when your kid, <laughs> you know, they get this jelly in the middle that absorbs moisture, a hydrogel in the middle. Um, I'm well aware of diaper technology yeah, these days yes, with my I, kids. <laughs> I think a lot of residents might actually. Um, <laughs> um, and some of them don't though. Like the, the original foam dressings were just like sponges. They would suck up the water, but if you squeeze it or put any pressure on it, it would push the exudate back out. So you have, that's what a foam dressing will do. Underneath these, we can use what I like to, a class of dressings I like to call fillers. So fillers are calcium alginates and hydrofibers. And a hydrofiber is man-made. It's carboxymethylcellulose. A hydrocolloid dressing has a very small amount, a very little amount of carboxymethylcellulose in the center, which is the absorptive layer. Um, but hydrofibers are just pure desiccated carboxymethylcellulose, which just sucks up moisture and turns it into a gel. A calcium alginate is brown seaweed, and it looks like a piece of felt. And when you put it on you know, on exudate, it sucks it up like a piece of felt will. Um, and a calcium alginate will absorb about 20 times its weight in moisture, whereas a hydrofiber will absorb about 30 times its weight in moisture. So hydrofibers are definitely more absorptive than uh, calcium alginates will. Now, I think it's interesting with those because I find a lot of patients will come in and their nurse or primary care uh, provider will have applied an alginate, but there's not enough exudate. So because they're supposed to kind of get gel-like, right? I think when they're full. And, and so then you're peeling off these little fibers. Um, I, I'm not really sure where I was going with that other than to say that, you know, I think you have to have the right amount, like you said, assess the amount of exudate and there needs to be enough to apply an alginate, not just sort of like, oh, here's this thing should yep. be good. And that's that piece that when you bring the patient back in a couple of days and you take the dressing off, you're going to look at the dressing to see, has the dressing dried out? Like, you know, is that alginate just a hard piece of paper like fabric uh, in there right. that's just causing more trauma to the skin? Or when you take the dressing off, do you see a lot of peri-wound maceration? So maceration is only mm -hmm. going to occur in the stratum corneum. So you're not going to see it in the wound itself because there's no stratum corneum. But that peri-wound maceration looks like when you've sat in the bathtub too long and your calluses turn all white. That's exactly mm -hmm. what peri-wound maceration looks like. So if you take the dressing off and that skin around the wound has that white color, uh, you, you know that you have got too much exudate, so you have not gotten the moisture balance right yet in that wound. And you need to choose an, a dressing, either go up a class to something that's more absorptive or put a filler underneath the dressing you already have to make it more absorptive. Otherwise, okay. you're doing wet to dry. And wet to dry is an old debridement technique that plastic surgeons used where you, where you wet a gauze, put it on the wound, let it dry till it gets hard, and then you tear it off. It seems like they still love that because I, I'm always getting <laughs> plastic surgeons still ordering wet to dry, and which I find frustrating when you're consulted on a patient and then the, you're getting differing, you know, the wound care nurse says this, the plastic surgeon says this, then you come in and say this. And, you know, I do think that when we look at how skin heals, we probably have the best capacity to be able to give them information, but they just, they love that wet. I know. Dry. And I often get around it by saying it because that's a debridement technique. 
and it's painful for the patient, we'd like to pick a debridement technique that is less painful. Uh, and patient, surgeons will often go for that explanation rather than, oh my God, wet to dry is so archaic. Because um, they still... That, that That's, yeah, they don't like to be known as archaic. No, they don't. Uh, okay, let's go for another call. You. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Sabrina, and I'm a dermatology resident at the University of Calgary. I have a question on the subject of wound care. What dressings are best to prevent scars or improve cosmetic outcomes? I don't know if there's an answer to this question. Now, this resident maybe is specifically looking at dressings after, say, a, pr- a procedure, but I, you know, you could apply it to just sort of any surgical or non-surgical wound. So, so there's two uh, approaches, two ways to look at that question. One is. What dressing do you choose when there's an, actually a wound there that you're trying to heal? And then secondly, once it's epithelialized, can you still use a topical therapy, and that might be a dressing, to improve um, the remodeling phase of wound healing? Right. Um, so for the first part, moist wound healing is always going to give you a better scar outcome than dry wound healing is. Once the wound has epithelialized, we have topical silicones that are available as uh, creams. And then there right. are those silicone dressings or those silicone pads um, that you can give a prescription, a patient a prescription for. They can go buy it over the counter. And these silicone will stick to the skin. Uh, you cut it, you know, about three times the size of the scar. You stick it on, you leave it on, you take it off after 24 hours, you wash it with a little bit of lukewarm water and mild detergent, and it's ready to go back on the skin again. No one really understands why silicone seems to improve that remodeling phase and get you through the remodeling phase faster, but it certainly does. If you've got a scar that's a little hypertrophic, if you've got a scar that's, um, you know, very slow to heal or it's in a cosmetically sensitive area, you can consider using either the silicone cream dressings or the silicone pad dressings. Yes. Now I, I do sometimes employ that. The other thing that I find plastic surgeons tend to like to tell their patients to put vitamin E capsules. And then I have a lot of patients who are obsessed with bio oil. Yeah. Do you think there's any, I mean, obviously from a contact perspective, vitamin E is of concern. However, do you think there's any benefit to those things or do you think it's purely that uh, mechanical massaging that they're doing that probably helps with scar tissue. I think your the second point is probably more accurate. It's that it's that no matter what you put on, you're massaging it in, you're rubbing it in, and I think the massage perhaps does more than the actual agent does. Just the that's fact. what I was always thinking. So yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, if you had a fairly simple wound, let's take a run of the mill uh, venous <laughs> ulcer. Over what period of time would you expect that to heal in? Like, what would be a conservative measure for how often would you see the patient? How long do you think it would take? Because, you know, patients expect it to heal the next week, but we all know that's not realistic. Yeah, the longer the wound is going to be there, generally, the longer it's going to take to heal. So if you've got a wound, if you've got a chronic venous ulcer that's been there 10 years and it hasn't healed, that's not going to, that's not going to behave the same way as the same size chronic venous ulcer in the same patient with the same comorbidities that's only been there for three months because you're going to get an awful lot of scar tissue um, and fibrosis in that wound that's going to really slow wound healing. Um, So, you know, that brings us back to the definition of a chronic wound. Like what is a chronic wound? The best definition that I know is a wound that fails to heal as expected. 
Now, the problem with that definition is there's no numbers <laughs> attached to it. And then we're saying that you need to know what normal is or what you would expect with this wound. Um, and people don't like that because when they're, especially when they're first starting out, they're going, well, I don't know, does that mean it'll take six months or six days or six weeks? Um, for an average size wound, then instead we'll tell patients, well, instead you should expect 50% healing within four to six weeks in an average okay. wound. That's that's pretty reasonable. What about a complex case where you're going to give it a bit more time? Uh, do you sort of think that those things would be maybe 50% improvement in three months or is there not a similar type of standard? That and Then that always takes me back to my diagnosis. You know, the because when we're looking at, you know, is this wound healing, is it getting any better? Is our treatment doing any good at all? Um, we don't want to be treating something that we think is chronic venous ulcer. And it turns out in the end, it was a squamous cell carcinoma that was missed. So mm -hmm. if, if you look at that wound, you'd say, oh, you know, really, that should be healing within, let's say, six to eight weeks. Let's be really conservative, six to eight weeks. If that wound has not healed at that end of time, and especially if it's getting worse or the patient is getting more symptomatic with the wound, then I think you should be saying to yourself, I need to reevaluate my diagnosis. Um, if it's a chronic venous insufficiency wound, there should be venous insufficiency. You can send patients for a, a venous Doppler ultrasound looking for reflux and insufficiency. So there are three yeah. types of, you know, Doppler ultrasounds you can do on lower leg. You can do the arterial one, which gives you arterial flow. You can do the venous Doppler ultrasound that looks for DVT. And then you yeah. can do a venous Doppler ultrasound that looks for flow and reflux in the venous system. And if you think it's a chronic venous ulcer with venous insufficiency, we'll prove that there's venous insufficiency. Where we get into problems or where we, it gets a little grayer is the patient who's older, has edema, because we all get gravitational edema with age, and right. is edema slowing the wound as opposed to chronic venous insufficiency slowing the wound? Um, but if I have a wound that I'm saying, I don't understand why it's not healing, I will, I'll take my handy dandy four millimeter punch biopsy has gotten every one of us out of uh, sticky situations, <laughs> right? And I will biopsy that and say to, and ask my pathologist to say, to make sure I'm not missing a malignancy. More so than and anything. I think, yeah, and I, I think that's something as well. People sometimes seem to hesitate about biopsying a wound. And uh, I have a relatively low threshold because I think it can provide you with a lot of information. And I think it's important, and maybe they don't care if it's coming from me, but if you agree with me, uh, you know, I, I don't think it really impedes wound healing when you take a small biopsy of an already open wound. I agree a hundred percent, yeah. Ar arterial ischemia, if I'm, if I'm convinced it's an arterial ischemic wound, you know, and the wound's probably not going to heal. I would be very reluctant to take a biopsy, but in any other case, I don't see how a biopsy hurts. And it gives us so much more information about what's happening underneath the skin. Right. So let's go for another call. Hi, Dermalogs. My name is Noelle Wong, and I am a dermatology resident from Dalhousie University. I'm wondering about what to do when you've tried everything you can think of and the wound is still not healing. Do you send them to vascular surgery for like, you know, below knee amputation? I'm just kidding. But what, you know, what's your go-to? What do you do when you're, you're just there, you're under the rope, you know, you're on your 10th dressing. So um, what's, your, what's your technique? Because I would send them to you, but now what do you do? 
Um, I might actually have an unhealable ulcer. Um, one of the things we didn't talk about was the um, effect of age on wound healing. Mm-hmm. And I did read a paper a few years ago that seems to suggest that 62, and I'm talking about a biological age of 62, not a chronological age of 62, seems to be kind of like the magic number for um, poor wound healing once you get past that age. And so we'll see a lot of 80-year-olds that, you know, it's a venous ulcer, they've had them before, they've healed them before, we've put them back into the same therapy, they're, um, you know, we biopsied it because it wasn't healing properly and it's just not healing. Um, I will often take, in those patients, I will speak to them, I'll do a nutritional history and I will ask them, you know, about what they're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. And often you will find that these patients, especially the elderly, they're not eating enough protein. And they're often, and you do their albumins and they're 22 or 21, you know, they're not great. Um, and I've had a few patients that we did absolutely nothing different except get them to eat a few extra eggs every day. And that extra protein really did help to, it's the only other variable that I had other than time, um, right. that seemed to just kick it towards, you know, give it an opportunity to heal. So would you routinely do, I guess this could come back to what we talked about at the beginning, but do you do routine blood work on patients that have wounds or you just in the right, in the right clinical context? Only in the right clinical context, but I would say the majority of 90% of patients, I do not routinely do blood work on. Um, if I think nutrition is an issue, I'd much rather take a nutritional history and you can evaluate if they say, Oh, you know, I, I, I eat, what do you eat for breakfast? Oh, I eat a, a slice of toast and a cup of tea. Oh, okay. What do you have for lunch? A sandwich. Okay. How many slices of bread? Two or one of one? Three ounces of meat? Oh no. They, you know, they put a thin, one thin slice of deli ham on their sandwich and then they don't have anything till supper. And then supper is another skimpy meal. You know, they're not getting enough nutrition to heal this wound. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, uh, if somebody has a really poor EBI and they're, you know, they're uh, palliative. You're not going to send those people to a vascular surgeon. Although being married to one, I'd argue that they will operate on anyone. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Matt. Uh, but no, uh, all, all joking aside, when, at, what patients do you send to a vascular surgeon? So like, let's say you see a patient, when do you think that they're reasonable, like either an ABI or a clinical context, um, assuming that they're not, say, a palliative patient for other reasons? Right. Okay. So um, I have there, there, I have two scenarios um, that I will send patients to a vascular surgeon. One is, of course, critical limb ischemia. Um, so the right. patient comes in and they're writhing on the bed in pain and their ABIs are terrible and they have ulcers and they have pain. Um, because our vascular surgeons will not, you know, blithely operate on all of these patients or even do angioplasty or even investigate these patients with uh, angiograms mm-hmm. or CT angiograms unless um, they think it's critical ischemia, like the patient's at risk of losing their leg. Um, so if I have an ulcer that I think is arterial, I will probably try moist wound healing if it's above the ankle. If it's below the ankle, I will not. I will often just give them something like a topical betadine to dry the wound out and see if that will heal. Um, and if I think that the, uh, that critical ischemia is significant, then I will fire off a consult to the vascular surgeon who is in our clinic and ask them for an evaluation. The other patient that I will often send to a, a, a surgeon is if I'm not sure about the arterial status, 
And we've all seen those patients, like the ulcer looks like it's arterial. Uh, it doesn't look like a vascular. We don't think it's a vasculitis. Their blood work is all normal. Um, the wound doesn't look like a vasculitis. You may or may not have biopsied it. It's not a vasculitis. Um, and yet the ABIs are equivocal. They're like point, they're like point 0.5 or point 0.6. Yeah. And you're going, oh. and if I'm not 100% sure, I will ask my vascular surgeon, I, say, I will say, do you think arterial insufficiency is playing a role here? And uh, if you think that it is, I feel a little bit more comfortable continuing to treat the wound or they might offer to go ahead and angioplast the patient. I don't always 100% understand their criteria because it seems to vary from surgeon to surgeon. <laughs> day to day even. If maybe you even day to day. Yes. <clears throat> okay. That sounds like a reasonable kind of person that you'd send along to a vascular surgeon. So, you know, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I, I feel like I've developed more questions than answers, but I even picked up a few clinical tips for myself here. So I want to thank you for that because thank I you. think not only for the residents, this is probably going to be useful for most of our practicing derms, especially ones that aren't doing wound care regularly. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I think that maybe if we could hit the highlight points, uh, my recap would be, you know, diagnosis is, is of utmost importance if things aren't behaving in a way that you think they should be, you got to have a low threshold for um, reassessing your diagnosis, considering biopsy. And then when you're picking a dressing, you have to kind of decide on, can you heal this wound? And do you want it to be, you know, is it wet or dry and kind of apply those principles? We didn't really get into a lot of discussion about compression. Um, but I think that, as you said, that could probably be its own whole hour. Um, but, you know, adding compression in when there's edema, anything other than arterial also probably does require some level of offloading and compression. So yeah, so it's sort of what I, you know, the takeaway points with, with the other interesting things like the infrared, never heard of that till now, uh, the UVC, um, things that sound pretty simple and not... Um, uh, not dangerous for patients, really safe. I think uh, I'm going to change my practice a bit. Dr. Parsons, thanks so much. Uh, much appreciated. And um, I'll, I'll get you back for, for a second round. Well, thank you very much, Carrie. Dr. Lori Parsons is a dermatologist and the medical director of the largest wound care clinic in Alberta, serving all of Southern Alberta and Eastern British Columbia. That's all for this episode of Dermalogs. Hope you enjoyed it. Next episode, we'll be looking into lasers with Dr. Vincent Richet. And I gotta tell you, he is passionate about lasers and photobiology. If you have any questions that you'd like to ask, or if you have ideas for future topics you'd like us to cover, do let us know. Call toll-free at 1-877-337-6564 or 1-877-DERMLOG. I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. Thanks so much for listening.